This is an economy of one, your beacon, guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Good evening and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, an economy of one.com, an economy of one.com. I'm going to skip the usual opening amenities and go right to my guest. Joining me now is John Tamneys, a senior fellow in economics at the Reason Foundation, editor of RealClearMarkets.com. He's also a political economy editor at Forbes and author of Popular Economics, What the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James Can Teach You About Economics. And his most recent book, Who Needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Can End the Biggest Bank in the World. John, welcome back to An Economy of One. Hey, Gary. Great to be here. I appreciate you taking some time. We've been hearing a lot in the news about sanctions and tariffs and that kind of stuff. And I told Katie, my producer, I said, well, get a hold of John because I I read some stuff in your book. Let's see if we can talk about sanctions and tariffs a little bit. So I appreciate you giving us some of your time. Let's take a 10,000-foot view first. And what's the difference between sanctions and tariffs? And uh, then we'll get into the effectiveness of them. Well, I I think sanctions, as I see them, they tend to be more of um, an embargo, as in we will no longer allow the American people to buy goods from certain countries, nor will we allow that country to sell goods to the American people. Tariffs are, on the other hand, an allowance of what is natural trade, but it's just it's a tax on those goods. Uh, both are damaging. Uh, sanctions are arguably less damaging just because they're so easy to get around. <laughs> well, I noticed that when you defined them, I didn't really think about this, but you're absolutely right. It's a restriction on Americans. It restricts what we can sell and what we can buy. How effective, I, I understand you can you can shop around. I mean, in your book, you talk about, you know, Fidel Castro wearing Nike sweatpants and, and uh, just as an illustration that he can buy whatever he wants, even though there's there's embargoes there. But does it really affect the country and the leaders or is it a penalty, really, on on the populace. Uh, it's it's just wholly symbolic. Um, you go back to World War One. The U.S. put an embargo on Germany. It was our producers were not allowed to export their goods to Germany. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, uh, exports to from the U.S. to Scandinavian countries surged. Uh, what was going on there? Oh, we were just trading with Germany through the Scandinavian countries. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you look at England, England was at war with just about every European nation in the 19th century. Um, they all had embargoes on England, but England continued to consume their wheat, meat, and wine as though it had been made in England. England just bought those goods and services from those they sold them to. Fast forward to the 70s, the Arab oil embargo was wholly symbolic. We still imported Arab oil. We just bought it from those they sold it to. You cannot control the final destination of any good tariffs uh, or uh, uh uh, sanctions are a total waste of time, particularly as they apply to Korea, North now, Korea. Uh, now, why do we do them? I mean, is it strictly a, a political grandstanding? Is it a, a soundbite? I mean, surely, 
President Trump, surely Congress knows that they're ineffective. Why do we do that? Um, you ask a very good question, and I don't. I've heard different. I, I remember the late Jude Winiski used to tell me, "Oh, believe me, Congress is fully aware that they're symbolic." I wonder. Um, <laughs> you've heard politicians, so have I. Um, we've heard Donald Trump talk. Uh, I don't get the feeling that there's broad knowledge of economic policy coming from Congress or President Trump, but they are wholly symbolic. I mean, isn't it interesting? Okay, we have got restrictions on Cuba's ability to trade. And so to this day, people in the U.S. say, well, Cuba's poor because of these sanctions. No, Cuba's poor because its people aren't free. If Cuba's people were free, we could have sanctions on Cuba, but the U.S., people in the U.S. would still be trading with the Cubans. They'd just be trading with them through other countries. Mm -hmm. The reason we import very little from Cuba is because the people aren't free to profit from their production. And so, again, it's a waste of time. It's symbolic. The notion that you can, that, that, that sanctions actually achieve anything is laughable. You have to admit, John, that one could make the case that there is a noble motivation behind a sanction. But, you know, I, I, I kind of lean toward Ron Paul. Is it really our job to try to force Russia to improve their human rights activities to curtail their military activities to get out of the Ukraine or something. I mean, at what point, because Americans are very charitable, we we have big hearts, we want to make the world a better place. At what point do we quit wrapping the gifts and sanctions? I mean, I know exactly. I, I, I don't I, – I reject the notion that sanctions are even noble. Uh, as we both agree, they're wholly symbolic. They right, achieve right. nothing. But what they do do is that they put the U.S. in the middle of things that it should not be in the middle of. Um, if the U.S. wants to make the world a better place, um, it can only do that by f- making its people free. It's pe- if the U.S., if the American people are trading with the rest of the world, that is the single best thing we can do for the rest of the world is expose them to the brilliance of our individual freedom. Anything else is destabilizing at worst, and, and also it just puts the U.S. in a bad light that maybe shouldn't, but maybe could lead to war of the shooting kind that we don't want to be involved in. You know, we're picking on Russia a lot, but do you see that the leaders of those countries kind of rally their own people in a martyrdom against the the evil United States that's trying to poke them in the eye? Um, I've heard that. Um, let's let's yeah. You and I have both heard that that this is one way supposedly that uh, the Castro regime in Cuba keeps the Cubans. Um, on their side to this day is they say, hey, look at what the U.S. has done. Look at how its sanctions are impoverishing us. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, is, you know, there is something to that. I think probably even there we overrated. I'm guessing the Cubans know very well the source of their problems. Um, and, and, and how we know this is all the Cubans that have tried to and succeeded in making it to the United States. Right. <laughs> they know what's up. Uh, you know, and, and, the, and the, the Soviets knew what was up. When they could get – on the rare occasion that they could get out of the country, they shot like crazy. They were aware of how beautifully we lived. And so, you know, I, I, 
Again, I, my own take is that I think the U.S. meddles too much in the rest of the world. They say it's about national security. My response is always a $4 trillion federal government is a much exponentially bigger threat to my well-being than anything going on in the rest of the world. Well, and, and you and I both agree, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's in your books. I can't quote page and paragraph, but I've read it in, in many places, how much capitalism has raised people in the world, not just in our country, but all over the world. How many people have been raised out of abject poverty because of trade, because of, of capitalism and producing goods and services and trading them? And I, I think that would be much more effective than poking each other in the eye, don't you? Oh, uh, without question. Uh, you know, think of... Think about something as basic as the toaster oven. No one listening to this show, least of all the two people talking, could ever make a toaster oven. Right. But we can go on Amazon and buy one for a few dollars, and that's the point. When people are free to trade, people get are free to specialize. And when they're free to specialize, they're free to earn more money that's exchangeable for more goods and services. To your point, capitalism is what lifts people out of poverty all the time. That's what I wish the U.S. would would export just be free be free allow its people sanctions don't work they just they needlessly create enemies at worst with the people in those countries and they are not our enemies john i gotta take a quick break can you hang on for for just a couple minutes i want to talk about how to export capitalism and i also want to on a touch on tariffs a little bit we haven't talked about that so uh if you can hang with me for a minute We'll take a quick break and uh, get back to talking to John Tamney, Senior Fellow in Economics at the Reason Foundation. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're spending a little time talking to John Tamney, author of the book, Popular Economics, what the Rolling Stones, Downton Abbey, and LeBron James can teach you about economics. And his new book, Who Needs the Fed? How Taylor Swift, Uber, and Robots Can End the Biggest Bank in the World. John, let's switch gears uh, just a little bit and talk about tariffs. Uh, we're right in the middle of, of uh, somewhere in the, the process of renegotiating NAFTA which uh, President Trump has indicated he wants uh, America to have a much better deal in the NAFTA agreement. Give us a little insight on tariffs in general, and then talk a little bit about the NAFTA kind of deals out there, because TPP kind of fell into that, and that got killed. And bring us up to speed on those things, would you? Well, you know, freedom to trade is the ultimate amazing deal. It means that you don't just have the people in your city, state, or country trying to serve your needs. It means you have the most talented people on earth lining up, fighting to serve you every single day, fighting to expand the value of your paycheck. What is prosperity but getting more and more in return for your work? And that's what free trade means. And what it also means, of course, is that when you have other people serving your needs – 
that frees you up to do the work that most elevates your skills. And so free trade, the, the reason we're the richest country in the world is because we're largely a free country. We are already Hong Kong. We are already an open market. The average tariff across all foreign goods in the U.S. is 1.4%. That's why we're so rich. Because we have the world serving our needs, we're able to get a lot in return for our work, but we're also able to specialize much more. And so in talking about NAFTA, Trump's got it exactly backwards. All these trade deals are generally about opening up foreign markets for U.S. producers. Because, again, we're already open. So NAFTA, TPP, this was about opening up foreign markets for U.S. companies to to send their goods to. Trump and his infinite unwisdom is going after (laughs) deals. We're about opening up markets for for U.S. producers. I'll never understand it. Um, You know, what he doesn't know about trade could fill many books. (laughs) Tell me how you really feel, John. (laughs) But uh, that being said, I mean, the the NAFTA deal is, I mean, should we just burn up the document and let companies trade back and forth between those countries? Well, you brought up Ron Paul earlier, and he's got it right. I mean, I think the one re- the reason he's against uh, free trade deals is he thinks that they shouldn't exist. As in, as individuals, we should be free to trade with whoever we want. And and, and I agree with him. Uh, you know, the the notion that government would control how we exchange our our wealth is just it's it's absurd. It, it's terrifying. Um, trade is the sole reason you'd work. Why else would you work other than to import? It could be from across the street. It could be from the other side of the world. But that's the only reason you're getting up in the morning. And so, and you know, in my perfect world, yeah, we'd rip up all these deals and say, you know what? The United States is a wholly open market. If you other countries are so stupid and backwards as to want to block U.S. goods, as in if you want to give us more in return for less, if you want to impoverish yourselves, you can do that. But we will be the rich country. We will take in all that you produce because that's what rich countries do. Now, is that the description? I mean, your last few sentences there, is that describing exporting capitalism? Uh, I think so, because what, what I think we find is that ultimately, if people are producing in countries that have barriers to foreign goods, they're ultimately trying to get them. And uh, I put it in an op-ed, but it's also in my next, next book. But this is something Donald Trump would rather people not know. But the Chinese have an insatiable desire and also worship of foreign goods. The, the Trump creates this, this notion, this narrative, that the Chinese are producing for us to impoverish us. No, 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 no. The Chinese are producing because they want to live like we do. Right. They are a formerly poor country. They want to live like the richest country in the world. You produce – the making is about the getting. And so, you know, if other countries want to put up barriers to goods and impoverish their people, let them. Eventually, the, their people will figure out a way to get all that they can in return for their work. You know, that, that leads into the question I wanted to ask you. What do we do about uh, a country uh, like Venezuela, maybe Iran? I mean, some of these countries that close their borders to trade, that do impoverish their people, are we under... I mean, once again, we're Americans and and we're very generous and and charitable. Uh, Do we have an obligation to try and change that government's policies in mind or should we sit on the sidelines and wait for the 
people of those countries to to rise up. I mean, eventually they do. I mean, we're seeing in Venezuela. I mean, they're they're eight seconds away from a civil war at any given time down there. What do we do uh, as that richest country in the in the world? Well, I don't think we do anything. I don't think we have an obligation to other countries. I don't think that's what the U.S. was founded on. The U.S. was founded on getting away from the world's conflicts, that we were going to be a free nation far, far away from all the mistakes taking place elsewhere. And so I don't think we have an obligation. In my perfect world, because I think immigration is always a good thing, I would say, okay, we're not going to get involved. But, hey, the U.S. is a country for those who want to escape tyranny. We want you. Um, We think that free people who are free can thrive in ways that they never could in in countries that aren't free. So come on over here. Uh, We'll be open to you. But at the very least, I don't think that we should be meddling in these countries. I don't see what we can achieve. The U.S. is not good at being a colonial power. In fact, it's very bad. Uh, When the U.S. gets involved globally, Frequently, lives are lost, and I don't see the point. Um, we were founded on avoiding this, and further, I go back to my basic truth that I think much more dangerous to my well-being and the well-being of just about of, of any American is a four trillion dollar federal government, not what's going on in Iran, Venezuela, or North North Korea. Yeah, I would agree. Four trillion in in budget, twenty trillion plus in debt. Um, not a good future. I got about 20 seconds left, John. Uh, what's the next book? I can't wait. Oh, the next one is it comes out in May. It's called The End of Work. It's a very optimistic book revealing how robots and all these advances that, that automate away work are actually leading to a work future that won't feel like work. We'll get to do the jobs we love as opposed to the jobs that we have to do. So it's very optimistic about what's ahead. Excellent. I can't wait. Your previous two books, wonderful books. I've recommended to them a lot of people. Appreciate all your work. Keep it up and appreciate the time you're able to spend with us tonight and look forward to tapping you on the shoulder again soon. Excellent. Well, Gary, thanks for having me on. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Coming up next, I've had a week to think about it. I haven't talked about it much until now. I'll talk about Charlottesville next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, it's been a week now since uh, we, we've had the uh, protests and, and counter-protests and the violence and the people getting hurt and a lady getting killed in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia. And I wanted to take the time. I didn't want to talk about it uh, last week. I wanted to talk about it this week because... As time goes by, more and more facts come out, more and more information comes out. And the more information I have, less likely I am to be tempted to put emotion to my thoughts. Now, the trouble with looking back at this is it's too easy to believe so many of the theories out there. It's easy to believe that this was a democratic or progressive staged operation and this is exactly what they wanted to have happen and they uh, they duped people into playing certain roles so that it would 
trigger certain reactions from other people and get the desired effect in the media that people ultimately wanted for this. No matter what Donald Trump did or said after this, doesn't matter. They were prepared. He didn't condemn it fast enough. He condemned the violence on both sides. That means he's supporting the white supremacist. It's just silly, and that tells me, not conclusively, I can't say definitively, but it tells me there's a certain amount of theater involved here. There's a certain amount of of people egging people on to get a get an action so they can get a a result that they want. Now, did President Trump cause this? Of course not. Uh, I loved the commentary by by Jesse Waters on the five uh, last week saying this is not President Trump's fault. The lady who died is not President Trump's fault. The lady who died is the nutcase's fault who drove the car and ran over. Once again, another useful idiot. The alt-right, which they're trying to group to everybody that is is not on the left. <laughs> uh, the alt-right, the, the whack jobs, the nutcases, the, the people way off there that identify as as fascists and that kind of stuff um there are very few people of those very few number of those people in the united states but there's enough there's enough that uh once again they can be goaded into doing things that other people can take advantage of did they cause the violence yeah they probably threw the first punch but the other side was ready there's stories about uh, the other side, the Antifa, um, being bust in, being paid by the hour to be part of that. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if we'll ever know if that's true. But the fact is that it's believable. And that, to me, tells me we got something really wrong here. Something really wrong. I thought about this all week, and I uh, came up with a with uh, what I think is a conclusion, and it has been um, voiced by other commentators as well, uh, all independently. I don't think we listen to each other very much, but uh, I think the ultimate goal of tearing down statues, of changing names of streets changing names of schools uh all of this uh this uh, uh pseudo uh i'm offended by a statue kind of stuff is, is part of a much larger plan it's a much larger uh strategy to go all the way back to the founding fathers and discredit them george washington thomas jefferson uh madison uh, all of these guys to discredit them because uh, they were they were slave owners they they supported slave owners that kind of stuff to ultimately discredit our constitution and by discrediting the constitution I mean so many on the left for your for a long time have 
dislike the Declaration of Independence, uh, dislike the Constitution. The Constitution has been called a living document, uh, which it does not. Um, people have, presidents and Congress have bastardized and, and twisted and, and stretched the words of the Constitution to, to fit their agenda uh, for a long time. This is not necessarily brand new. Uh, it's just accelerated and become more magnified uh, today. But uh, the Founding Fathers were, I think, very, very smart in putting this document together. They had a lot of wisdom and foresight. Were some of them slave owners? Yes. Were some of them uh, flawed individuals? Absolutely. We, I think we all are uh, flawed to, to one extent or another. But together, and with all the people of the states, the original 13 states ratifying the Constitution, together, they created something that was never created before, that had never existed before, and, it, and it, it, it built America. Now, we had a civil war in there, and I think we're very close to having another one. Uh, certainly not like the first. Uh, this would be a more of a civil war of ideas, but it, uh, obviously we've seen the violence attached to these ideas. And... That bothers me a little bit. I don't want to see a civil war, a violent civil war in this country. Now, the rest of the world, I think, most of the rest of the world, love to see that. Love to see it. Anything that brings us down a notch as a country elevates our enemies. You know, there's an old adage, and I've used it in business many, many times. Never attack an enemy who's busy committing suicide. Korea doesn't have to attack us. Russia doesn't have to attack us. China doesn't have to. Iran doesn't have to. We're busy messing ourselves up. They can sit by and watch while we self-destruct. There's people in the world, powerful people, and by power I mean access to uh, networks and money, big money that would like nothing better than to see the world burn, as they say. Some people just want to sit back, watch the world burn, knowing they'll play a, uh, a prominent role in the rebuild, a prominent role in the survivors, and be able to create more money and more wealth and more power. Is Charlottesville about economics? Partially, and I'll talk about that in the next segment. But it's about people attaching everything to emotion and letting emotion drive the debate, letting emotion uh, drive their actions. I have a lot of problem with emotion. Now, I'm not a, a cold, stone-hearted, total pragmatic person, but I am kind of a 
cold-hearted, stone-hearted, pragmatic person. I'm a realist. And uh, many cynics call themselves a realist. And I'm somewhat of a cynic. I tend to see um, not necessarily always the worst-case scenario, but I tend to not see the best-case scenario in a lot of these situations. And uh, I know that 99% of America is disgusted with conversations around socialism and communism and fascism. But I also know there's a lot of people that can't define those three terms and will rationalize in their own mind if those terms are wrapped in a pretty package to uh, tend to go along with it. That, to me, is, is a major part of what causes me stress and anxiety is just the, the level of ignorance that people have, but yet are still letting the emotion drive their actions. There's people on both sides that went to Charlottesville hoping, hoping to have happen what happened. Why would, why would people bring weapons? Why would they bring clubs and bats and knives, guns? Why would they do that if they weren't expecting and possibly hoping for a confrontation like this? George Orwell said in 1984, not in the year 1984, in his book 1984, that those who control the present control the past, and those who control the past control the future. You erase our past. You take down everything that has to do with the Confederate side of the Civil War, and what do you have? You have an opportunity to forget what happened there. And where does it stop? I told you earlier it stops at getting rid of the Constitution. But what else goes away during that time? We get rid of all the statues. We get rid of all the street names. We get rid of all the the schools' uh, names. You know what? Then it's books. Then it's songs. Then it's poetry. Are we going to ban certain songs from being played or sung? Certain books from being read or owned? Movies? Movies will have to be destroyed. Documentaries? Smithsonian Institute film from the Civil War? Where does it stop? Where does it stop? President Reagan said... Liberty is but one generation away from disappearing. We lose our liberty in this country. The world will lose its liberty. And if it's lost, I can't see a time ever, ever, when it can be regained. Maybe wrong, but our time is now. This is important. 
It's easy to sit in the armchair and look at it with disgust and shake your head. Real easy to do that. Real difficult to go out and start changing people's minds. Increase the dialogue. Get the education. Educate other people. Very hard to do that. But that's what we got to do. Coming up next, I'll talk a little bit about what type of education is needed going forward. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, in talking to John Tamney and all that's happened over this last week from last weekend on Charlottesville and uh, all the news this week and all the finger pointing and and everything, I, I had to step back and think about this a little bit. And it boils down to a couple of things for me. One, so much of the discourse that we're having in America today should come down to economics when it really doesn't. It's stuck in the emotional mode. And because of that, different sides, because there's so much emotion involved, different sides or different opinions, different thoughts, resort to violence and yelling and screaming. And and really, there's no... No discussion, there's no rationale, there's no persuading anybody because it's so emotionally attached. When you look at economics, I know it's called the dismal science for a reason, but it's really only dismal at the beginning. Once you start getting into it and start understanding that economics is all about personal choice. Okay, personal choice. On this show, I talk all the time about private property, self-reliance, independence, making your own choices, libertarian ideas, Austrian economics. I mean, this, it all falls under this category. And the relevance of, of economics in our, our daily lives revolves around choices. We make thousands of choices every day. And we make thousands of economic choices every day. And all of those choices are influenced by incentives. Why do I choose to fill up my car at one station over the other? Well, the price of gas is different. That's an incentive to go to one or the other. One, I have to cross three lanes of traffic to get to. One is on my way and I can whip in and whip out. That's an incentive. Everything is based on incentives. In addition, any time that those incentives are produced by artificial means, meaning a government, then you generally produce unintended consequences. Because the choice, going back to the original, the choice of going to one gas station or another, the incentives... Uh, are monetary. The incentives can also be convenience. Yeah, I'll pay a nickel more if I don't have to cross three lanes of traffic twice. 
on my way home. By crossing three lanes of traffic, I can bottle up traffic, I can cause accidents, I can do all kinds of goofy things. And anytime the government puts an incentive on anything to try and get people to make the choices that it wants to make, there are unintended consequences. Let's take, for example, Philadelphia uh, putting a tax on soda. What happens? People make other choices. The unintended consequences of that is they buy soda from somebody else outside the city, and the vendors inside the city have a direct reduction in their business. Ludwig von Mies said, economics deals with society's fundamental problems. It concerns everyone and belongs to all. It is the main and proper study of every citizen. My thought process is that if you properly educate people, and I'm not talking college, I'm talking before college. If high school students understand economics and that all individual decisions are driven by incentives and they start looking at the world through individual decisions and incentives suddenly that opens up the methodology of discussion about other ideas take the affordable care act i'm not against anybody having access to health care i'm against the way government wants to mandate things and the way it's paid for. Economic education is absolutely necessary in the discussion with opposing views. People have to understand opportunity costs, comparative advantage, incentives, all of that in order to make proper decisions. Too often it boils down to pure emotion. If you don't support this policy, you hate American values. If you don't support this policy, you dislike people. If you don't support this policy, you're a racist. We see this all the time. Take the emotion out, educate on the economics and the incentives and why people make the decisions they do, why people support the things they do, then we get into the proper way to discuss ideas, no violence involved, and we will come to a suitable conclusion. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.